Well, good morning, beloved. If you have your copy of Scripture, will you turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5? We'll be in Ephesians chapter 5. And while you're turning there, I um, invite you into the life of the Franklin household. Um, just so you know, I, I'm learning that so much of life is learning how to dance. Um, have you ever thought about that? Like, there's so many things that require you to learn the dance. And so um, waking my family up is a delicate dance I have learned over the years. Um, if, if it's my kids waking me and my wife Courtney up, um, I've learned um, that's, that's a terrifying dance um, because if it's my son, it means that in the dark of night, all of a sudden from the other side of our 1,200 square foot home, I hear a door, wham, flies open. And then it's like an elephant somehow got into the house as he boom, 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 as fast as he can, like runs across the house and he's on top of me. That's just always how he wakes up. There is no, like, he just woke up and it was a nice peaceful morning and he kind of strolled into the room. He's like, hey, buddy, how are you? No, it's, he freaks out. Some, just something clicks in his mind and he's throwing the door open, running in, terrifying, but you have the warning for about two seconds of something bad's about to happen as he comes crashing in. And you know, you, guys, you know, you cover over. It's terrifying. Um, my daughter, on the other hand, is just as terrifying because she is very quiet about it. She sneaks into the room and you wake up and it's pitch black and as your eyes adjust, you realize there's a face right there. <laughs> She's just looking at you. <laughs> um, so that's my kids waking us up. Um, and then me waking Courtney up. Never mind. We won't talk about that. Um, and then there's me waking the kids up. If I'm not careful, it's either off the charts rage or it's this entrapment. Just, just one more minute, Daddy. Tickle my back. Just one more minute. And then it's another minute and another minute and another minute. There's just there's not a good way to do this. So I've learned that waking my family up um, requires a dance that's a gentle entry. Like you gently enter into this endeavor, um, and, then you, and then you try to distract them quickly. You act like um, we're not in the process of waking up, as I plead with them to wake up. It's kind of distract them, move on, carry on with what's going on. Sometimes, though, it's like they don't believe me. Like, you're trying to wake them up, like, wake up, we, we really have to get ready. Like, it's going to be a good day. We're going to do something fun. And it's like they don't believe me. I don't know if you wake up like that. You just don't believe that waking up is worth the effort. Um, but sometimes it's hard to convince them to believe me. And speaking of things that are kind of hard to believe, hard turn here. Is hell real? Is hell real? Do you actually believe that hell is real? Um... Leslie Schumacher, she, she writes this. She says, Jesus talked about hell more than any other person in the Bible. In Luke 16, he describes a great chasm over which none may cross from there to us. In Matthew 25, Jesus tells of a time when people will be separated into two groups, one entering into his presence, the other banished to eternal fire. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned against the absolute reality of hell. Jesus doesn't only reference hell. He describes it in great detail. He says it is a place of eternal torment, of unquenchable fire, where the worm does not die, where people will gnash their teeth in anguish and regret, and from which there is no return, even to warn loved ones. He calls hell a place of outer darkness, Comparing it to Gehenna, which was a trash dump outside the walls of Jerusalem where rubbish was burned and maggots abounded. Jesus talks about hell more than he talks about heaven and describes it more vividly. There's no denying that Jesus knew, believed, and warned about the absolute reality of hell. 
So do you believe? Uh, Pew Research, I'm sure you're familiar with this, this group that does a lot of research in our nation in particular, but in 2021, they released a survey of thousands upon thousands of Americans and their views of the afterlife. And that survey concluded that 73% of Americans believe in hell, but only 60% believe in, or I'm sorry, 73% believe in heaven, but only 60% believe in hell. And say that again. 73% of American adults believe in heaven, but only 60% believe in hell. And so you have to ask, why the disparity? That we're more inclined to believe in heaven than hell. And if you break down the aggregate data, you look, you look more specifically into different categories, um, even atheists are more likely to believe in heaven than hell. And so you have to wonder, what is that? What is it in us culturally that makes us more inclined to believe in the reality of heaven than the reality of hell? Why are we so opposed to this thought? And I think that it's largely because culturally there's this sentiment um, that even if someone is not active in any faith or does not even believe in any form of deity, there's this sentiment that, well, if there is a God, me and God are good. We're okay. It's okay. I'm not that bad. Everything's going to be okay. In other words, what that means is that we have made God's holiness something that is trivial. If there is an all-powerful, all-good God who is holy and he is just, then is hell not an appropriate reality? Do we believe this? Do we believe that there is a holy God and that our rebellion, our defiance, our falling short is actually significant in the sight of a holy God? Do we believe that? Do we believe it or do we even care? And that's the question we have to wrestle with. As we come to this text today, look at where we pick up. We left off last week. Um, so we're picking up in chapter 5, verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. Therefore, do not become partners. For you were once darkness, but now you were light in the Lord. Live as children of light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible, for what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. So as we look at this passage, as Paul is continuing in this letter, you start with verse 6. He says, Let no one deceive you with empty arguments, for God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. And we should, again, always context. Look, look at the context. He says, because of these things. God's wrath is coming on the disobedient because of these things. And we should think, well, what are these things? That means we have to read back and look back at verse 5. For know and recognize this, every sexually immoral and imp or impure or greedy person who is an idolater does not have an inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and of God. So because of these things, namely because of idolatry, trying to put something or someone in the place of God, which manifests itself largely in sexually immoral, impure, or greedy, because of these things, the wrath of God is coming on the disobedient. What does disobedient mean? They do not obey. Who are they not obeying? The holy God. His wrath is coming. This is real. And we should read this as followers of Jesus or not followers of Jesus, and we should be humbled, and we should have some right fear from this. 
follower of Jesus, you realize as you read this, and he's addressing this to the saints in Ephesus, remember? As, as followers of Jesus, if you think that because of salvation by grace through faith, you have no need now to be concerned about holiness, you are in grave danger. We, we unpacked this in the last couple of weeks that he has shown us extensively that our salvation is not something we could earn. It's not something we deserve. It's God in grace. When we were dead, he made us alive in Christ, that we could do nothing to save ourselves, to earn a right standing relationship with God. We have no righteousness of our own. But God gives us his righteousness. He becomes our salvation. Jesus took our place on a cross and died the death that you and I deserve. And then he rose again victorious over sin and death. And he's inviting us into everlasting life with him. Why? Because of what he has done. Because he loves us. Not because of anything that we could do. And so our salvation is entirely by grace through faith. We just believe, we respond to this call of Jesus to turn from our sins, confess to be sinners, confess him to be a Lord who can save, believe he died and rose again. We must believe that, and that is our salvation. He is our salvation. And yet at the same time, Paul says, now when you get that, and you understand this is your position, that is going to change you. It's going to lead to a different way of life that as that chapter two, um, that famous passage about you're saved by grace through faith, not of works, no one can boast. But then what does it conclude with? That he, he's made his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for these good works that he prepared for us to walk in. That we are saved now to live to the glory of God. And so as we see this, if you think that, oh, I have put my trust in Jesus and now I'm fine and I need... Never think about holiness. I, I just, you know, I'm good. Everything's good. That I don't know that it actually is good. Because God has called us now to be holy like our Father is holy. We should be concerned about holiness. But we have to know how to rightly be concerned about our holiness. It is a thing that we should be concerned of, but we must remember, keep in our mind's eye constantly. Remember, the, the battleground of holiness last week is what? The mind. And so in our mind, we must keep central. It is Christ. It is his power perfecting us. It is his holiness that is given to us, and now we live out of that reality. And so when we're struggling with sin, when we're struggling with all these things, that the disobedient, the, the ones who are becoming idolatrous, all these things, what is the cure for that? It's not white-knuckle it. It's not try harder. It's see the beauty of the gospel. It's trust more in the power of God. Well, you then actively press into that. It's not a passive thing, though. You actively pursue him and that, pursue his kingdom, his righteousness. But we let go of our own. And so if this is true, the wrath of God is coming, then we should be a little moved by that. We should be a little unnerved by that. That is troublesome. It is a terrifying thing. It is a necessary thing because God is holy and he is loving. And do you know where wrath comes from? Any kind of righteous wrath? It comes from defiance of what is good and what is loved. If you tell me that you have children and you never get angry with your children, I would probably say, I don't know that you love your children. <laughs> I, We'll try not to get on a soapbox here, but if you think that you should just be friends with your children, you are not loving them and leading them as you should. There are moments of just anger. We talked about that last week. But that anger is actually an overflow of love if it is stewarded properly. When you think of God and his love for us, 
as a holy God who has his beloved children. And then there's evil in the world. There are things that we do and encounter, all these things that hurt us. Is it not the appropriate response of a loving father to be angry about that? To have wrath for that? If you say you love your spouse and you watch your spouse get hurt and you are not moved to anger, then do you love your spouse? No, wrath is actually necessary because of his love. Because he is holy and he is loving and there are things that are not holy and not loving happening to the object of his affection. He is justly wrathful. His wrath is coming. And it should be a real concern. And you think about this, that if God is God and he is omnipotent, he has all power, there is nothing that can stay his hand. That's what a pagan said, Nebuchadnezzar, after God turned him into a beast for a while. Like, you think you're at the height of everything? Watch this. And next thing you know, he's like out getting feathery and stuff. It's weird. But he looks to the skies. He looks to the heavens and says, nothing can stay your hand. The most powerful person on the planet at the time realized, yeah, I have nothing. And he has everything. This God who spoke creation into existence, this God who the psalmist says, his voice causes the, she- the cedars to tremble and break. He tells the lightning where it should strike. He stores up hail as a form of weaponry that when the battle's not going as he wants, watch this, and devastates the enemy. This is, this is the God who we have a picture in the revelation of him coming back and he's covered in blood as he enters into battle and the sword coming out of his mouth and he just lays into the enemy and blood flows like a river. This God is to be feared. He is not trivial. <laughs> he, is, he is to be feared. He is a big God and he is so much bigger than we could ever imagine. And he has real wrath. Oh, you want to consider, what is the magnitude of that wrath? Like, what will that day look like? And this is where you can actually see it. You want to know the wrath of God? You look back about 2,000 years ago, and you see the Son of God nailed to a cross. The only truly innocent one to have ever walked this planet. Jesus, fully God, and then fully man as he comes and takes on flesh and becomes like his own creation, the creator. And he, living a sinless life, is then betrayed by his closest friends. They all run away. One of them betrays him with a kiss, and they make a mockery of a trial. They clothe him in this crown of thorns that they sink into his skull. They pull his beard out of his face. They've stripped him naked. They're humiliating him. They're beating him ripping the flesh off of his back and then carrying his own cross as he stumbles and they bring this other guy, help him get it up there. They march him to the skull hill and they seat him up on this cross where he's going to suffocate and die. That is God in flesh has come. Why? Because the wrath of God is real. But God is so gracious and loving that he said, I'm actually going to take that on myself. And so God would step in and say, I will take on my own wrath so that you don't have to, beloved. What kind of God is that? What magnitude is that? That is a real wrath. That is a terrifying wrath. The the earth shook. Graves were split open and people from the dead came up. It was dark in the middle of the day for three hours. 
the temple veil was torn violently in two to where everyone who would have been terrified, if I could see into that holy of holies, it would destroy me. And now it's just ripped wide open. The magnitude of God's wrath is more than we could ever dream. And yet, he in grace said, I'm going to step into that for you so that you don't have to encounter it. And so, do we live now having known that we have, we have been spared the wrath of God and now like, oh, it's just this thing. You know, Jesus died for me. I remember as a teenager, it became cool to say, Jesus is my homeboy. There was a shirt people wore. What a terrifying thing. Jesus calls us friends, but that should humble us. That should be so moving to us, should be so endearing, but it should never lower him in our sight to think that now he's just like one of us, throw my arm around him. No. We will see him one day like John saw him on the Isle of Patmos in this revelation. And there's fire in his eyes. And he speaks with the sound of a thousand waterfalls crashing around you. And his hair is white. His face is like bronze. And what does John do? He falls. That was my best friend. That was my best friend. But he sees him in this glorified state and he falls as though dead. And it's not until Jesus reassures him, don't be afraid. He's the one who died, but I'm alive forevermore and I hold the keys of death and hell. This is our God. So in light of that, now Paul says this in verse seven. He says, therefore, do not become their partners. Do not become their partners, for you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of the light, for the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. He says, don't enter into partnership. That does not mean that you avoid them. And we think, like, it's, it's so easy. We're very good at this, especially in this cultural moment of us, them. Us and them, okay? And, and there's, there's a right way to do that, that we should acknowledge there are those who are in Christ and those who are not. And so we can think in that us-them mentality of like, all right, heartbreak, we don't get in with them. He's saying like, don't, don't become partners with them, but he's not saying that you avoid them. He's not saying that you stay away from them. Actually, I grew up in a context, and I love the church, and, and I don't hold this against them, but I grew up repeatedly hearing the sentiment one of my favorite promises in the scriptures, God said he'd never leave me and never forsake me. So if Jesus is going to be with me, I'm not going to bring a holy God into an unholy place. And that sentiment, that statement would be used to justify staying away from bars or parties where there might be unbelievers or, or some things that are just not so kosher. We're not going to go to R-rated movies and like all kinds of legalistic ideas where can't go there because God is with me. He promised to never leave me. So why would I take him into such a dark place as that? Have you read the Bible? Do you know where Jesus liked to hang out? He's constantly in the home of sinners. So much so that he was called a drunk and a glutton because he's just partying it up with the worst of the worst. And then they'd accuse him of things. And they're like, you know, do doctors go to sick people, right? Sick people go to doctors, right? What do you, what do you think I'm here for? We, we should not abdicate our calling by saying, well, Paul is telling us, don't be partners with them. That does not mean that we avoid them. It means we don't partner with them. We don't, this root part is the same as participate. And so we'll see that as we carry on. Um, look at verse eight now. Um, 
ye were once darkness, but now you are light and the Lord. Live as children of the light. It's personal. Do you see how personal it just got? You were once darkness. He, he made it so personal in this portion to where he didn't say, you were once in darkness. You once were darkness. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Now you are light in the Lord. You know this is where you came from. And if you say that's not the case, then you're deceiving yourself. You once were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. This is personal. Don't forget your story. Don't forget where God has brought you from. That you once were darkness, but now you are light. And light and darkness, this great contrast, they they oppose each other. But look at verse 9 now. For the fruit of light consists of all goodness, righteousness, and truth. Testing what is pleasing to the Lord. So this light brings about goodness, righteousness, and truth, testing what is pleasing to the Lord. Goodness relates to being generous toward others. Righteousness relates to right actions and quality of life. Truth relates to alignment with reality and opposing what is false. So what are the things doing? What are darkness and light at odds about? These things. About being good, being generous to other people. About being righteous, relating rightly to others in your actions and the quality of your life. It's truth, this alignment with reality opposing what is false, caring about what is right. And darkness would be opposed to these and the fruit that it bears. It's being selfish in relationships. It's being wicked in your living and your actions. It's being full of falsehood or lies and deceit. And so we see the two colliding with each other and he's like, you don't participate with that. You don't become a partner with that. Now verse 11 Don't participate, it's explicit. Don't participate in the fruitless works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what is done by them in secret. Everything exposed by the light is made visible. Don't become involved in the works of the evildoers. This is what light does. It exposes what was hidden in darkness. And I love the way that Paul is using these words very carefully. Paul is saying, do not participate in the works of darkness, but expose them. So you can't run away from them. It's not, again, it's not about avoiding them. It's about relating rightly to them. Don't participate in them, but expose them. That is our calling, believer, is to not participate in the works, the, the works of darkness, but to expose these works of darkness. And so we must evaluate which of the two are we doing. And you think about your day-to-day, your week-to-week, your month-to-month, your every rhythm. Are you participating in the works of darkness? Are you exposing them? And it's so easy for us, again, to think like, us, them. Well, don't participate with them. Expose them. But what if it starts with, what am I participating in myself? What darkness am I participating in? And how do I expose that? How do I expose the darkness that's in me? I love the contrast he's made here. In verse 9, he says, the fruit of the light but now in verse 11, it's the fruitless works of darkness. What does that mean? Why fruitless? Why isn't it the fruit of the light and the fruit of the dark? Because the things that are done in the darkness are self-sabotage. These are sins that terminate in and on themselves. Because it's actually fruitless. They're works, but they're fruitless. It's actually just taking life. And so again, we have to ask, how can these hidden things in the darkness be exposed by light. 
You reveal what's in the dark by shining light into it. And where does this light come from? Where do we find the light to expose the dark? If that is our calling, is to not participate in the works of darkness, but to expose them. How do we expose them? How do we shine light in it? Look at what he says, and this is interpreted and and thought to be so many different things, but look at 14. For what makes everything visible is light. Therefore it is said, get up, sleeper, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Where does this light come from that will expose the darkness? Christ. And so we must live in Christ's light. This is how we expose the fruitless works of darkness. We call sinners, like we once were, dead, asleep in the darkness, being the darkness, to wake up, to rise from the dead, and to shine in Christ's light like we now do. It's to shine the light of Christ. That light is not our own. It is Christ's light. And so what we do in exposing the darkness in us and exposing the darkness of them, not participating in that, not partnering with that, is we just need the light of Christ. You always bring the light of Christ. Let it shine. Let it shine on you. Let it shine on others. But it's always his light, not ours. We have been called light by Jesus because he has given us his light. He is the light of the world who has come into the darkness and the darkness could not comprehend it. The darkness could not overcome it. You you can't take light into darkness and let that darkness just seep in and take the light out of it. No, the light pushes darkness back. So wake up. We have to care that others are dead and others are in darkness. We have to do something about that. We do something about that by living in the light and calling others into that light. And so, again, like my kids, trying to convince them to wake up, that is what we are doing. We are pleading with the world on behalf of God, be reconciled, shine the light of Christ. Let them see the beauty of who he is. Let them know that there is a hope that drives this darkness back. It's the light of Christ. It is him. He is the one who does this. But again, this difficulty in waking someone up is convincing them that it's worth waking up to. It'd be so nice. I, I, I so love the idea and I pray desperately for the gift of evangelism because I don't preach and see a lot of people come to saving faith. I want to so bad. I want to so bad. Like, what would it be like to just walk down the trail daily And every person I talk to and try to share the gospel with, to see them fall to their knees and be like, there's water right here. What's stopping me from being baptized? Nothing. Let's do it. But what what is my hope in? It's not in me being effective at waking people up. It's not my shaking ability. It's not my yelling ability. It's not flickering the lights or whatever I do to try to get my kids up. Sometimes it gets weird, you know. No. It's what is the light that you come in the room with? It's the light of Christ. And that's all we do is just bring his light, shine it. Just shine his light into this darkness. Shine the light of Christ. Live in the light of Christ and others will be called from the dead, from the dark, from the sleep, their slumber, to rise up. To rise up. To do something about that. Um, Some of you may have been salivating for the last hour if you know what this is. Um, there's a favorite dessert place in my family. Um, the name's right there, but I won't say it because they're not sponsoring us. So. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I know. Man, 
this place. There are two locations in the Orlando area. Um, one of those locations, spoiler alert, you can actually just stand in line for about 12 minutes and get whatever you want. Um, the other one, you're going to go there and you're going to put your name on a virtual queue. And then if it's like the last time we went there, three and a half hours later, they tell you, now come stand in line and wait 30 minutes. Um, yeah, don't know what the business model is, but it's the only place where I've actually been told we don't want you to buy more of our cookies. This is all you can have. What is that? That's crazy. But they're apparently that good. They are that good. They really are. They're that good. This one right here. Oh, this is my favorite. By the way, that's one cookie. That is one cookie. That is one cookie. This one, hold on. Mm. This one is the banana bread chocolate chip cookie. Let me just enjoy this for a second. But. Thank you. Um, this is the description. A decadent vanilla bean cookie blended with real bananas, a mix of dark and semi-sweet chocolates, candied walnuts, and finely crushed banana chips. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> it's amazing. It is so good. Like, the, the wait, though, the wait, like three and a half hours to now stand in a 30-minute line. We're staying here. We're not going anywhere. We'll walk around. I don't care if the kids need to go to sleep. We're waiting. We're waiting for this because it's that good. We are waiting for this. And speaking of waiting, the wait. These are half pound cookies. Half a pound of cookie. Like, sign me up for diabetes. Like, wow. Half a pound of just beautiful, wonderful, delicious goodness. And you know what I want to do? Every person that I ever talk to about desserts, you know what they're going to hear about? This cookie. Because I constantly tell people about it. Like if, if we take friends to, to Disney Springs where the, one of their locations is, like we got to go put our name in because we're going to be waiting a while. But we're going here. Like it's amazing. The, the friend who told me about this told me about the two locations and was trying to plan like a special date night for Courtney and stuff. And I, I thought like, oh, it's not that big of a deal. Like it was just kind of like backup plan and everything. We ended up going and I was, I was actually upset with the guy. He's right there, by the way. Like, why did you not make that a bigger deal to me? Like, this was not an optional thing. Like, you have to try this. You have got to try this. Like, seriously, I love it so much, I bought enough that everyone gets a little bit, okay? So Connect Team is going to pass them out, and you can try some. It is that good. You cannot not try this. Um, there's one tray that has no nuts, but um, they're all made in the same place. So if you have a nut allergy, heads up on that. Oh, man, if you're fasting or you're dieting, I'm so sorry. Yeah. <laughs> They're so good, though. Like you, you don't know how good they are until you've tried it, until you've tasted to see how good this is. And do you know what I'm doing right now? I'm doing what is so normal in our culture, that we talk constantly about the things that we are genuinely convinced are good, the things that we love, we love to talk about. We say this over and over and over. How? 
How in the world am I going to convince you to share this gospel, to be like this statement where Paul says, get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. What's gonna convince you to share this good news is you have got to taste it. You've got to see that the Lord is good. You've got to know and actually experience his goodness, that it's not just, oh, wow, the wrath of God is very real and I should be afraid of that and I'm gonna avoid that by putting my trust in Jesus and so I get this get out of hell free card. If you end there, you have missed it. Hell is real. The wrath of God is so real, but it is so much more. It's such better news to know that God actually has given us himself in this. He's not just saying, I took your punishment, but he says, I took your punishment so I could get you and I brought you back to myself and I want to live life with you. Do you know the beauty of a God who is that gracious, who says, I want you? That is one of my greatest struggles as a man is I want so badly for my wife to want me. When I walk into a new environment, when I'm making new friends, when I'm trying to be successful in a a job or whatever it is, do you know how badly I want people to want me? And I live my life with this insecurity of like, what if they don't like me? What if they don't want me? What if I don't add value to this? What if, 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 really, what if they don't want me? But to know that there's a God, do you hear me? Do you hear this? Open your ears and hear this. There is a God who says, I want you. A God who loves you in that way that he says, you can belong. This is where you belong. You can be known. I know everything about you. And I love you. There's a God who desires us, who truly loves us. He is pleased with us, and that is nothing that we have done ourselves. But because he is gracious, he has done it for us. That God desires me and is delighting in me because he has made it so. And so that means I am free. There's nothing I can do to break this love to separate myself from God or anything in all of creation in Paul's terms in Romans 8. Nothing in all of creation can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can take that away. Do you know what that love is like? When you taste and see that the Lord is good, when you experience the way that he loves you, then what are you going to do? You're going to run around saying, get up, sleeper. Get up, sleeper, and rise up from the dead and Christ will shine on you. You've got to wake up. You've got to experience this. You've got to know the goodness of a God who has come to save you. He loves you like this. And so I want to ask right now, do you know him? Have you tasted? Do you know the goodness of a God who would save us in this way? That he would die for you? Do you actually know him? Do you want that salvation? Do you want to experience life everlasting? As Jesus said, life to the full. Do you want the freedom and joy that can never be taken from you, regardless of life circumstances? And sometimes they can just suck. And yet there's a God who is with us while it sucks. And he says, I love you and I want you. Will you believe that? You're a skeptic. You don't know what to believe. Seeker, you want to know what to believe stumbling saint, just again, again, I keep falling in this. And he's saying, don't participate in it. Don't partner with it. And I just keep finding myself here. Doubting saint, I don't know if this is really for me. It's real. Will you believe it? A follower of Jesus, who can you share this good news with? Let's go wake some people up. Shine the light of Christ. 
and live in the light of Christ. Pray with me. Father, thank you for your love. It is like none other. So would you impress on us a greater certainty, give us a greater measure of faith to believe you and the things that you have said. As was read earlier in a gathering, that you, Jesus, did not come to condemn the world, but to bring salvation for us and because you love us and you want us. So God, give us a grander view of your holiness, of your wrath, of your majesty, and help us to live rightly in light of that. And that's your light. Help us to shine brightly as we call others to wake up, to rise up from the dead. Let the light of Christ shine on them. Make it so, Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.